Introducing Season 5 of the Chabrusa Podcast, The Haggadah. An epic debate over the meaning of history, the Torah's take on freedom, Ben-Gurion's 1947 speech, why questioning is at the core of spirituality, and why the Seder begins with Kadesh. I'm Moshe Shomer, this is the Chabrusa Podcast, an exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. Super excited to begin a new season on the Chavrusa podcast, delving into the Haggadah. Haggadah, one of the most ancient Jewish texts, one of the most contemporary and relevant texts simultaneously. The Haggadah, really the, the core component of the Seder, the Passover Seder, it's the oldest surviving ritual in the world today, dating back three 1,333 years. Unbroken tradition, ritual that has been happening every single year. The reign of Ramses of Pharaoh when the Jews had their last meal in Egypt on the 15th day of Nisan, preparing for their long journey to freedom. And yet the Seder is, of course, it's, it's much more than just a ritual. It's not just a, a custom, but it's an act, it's a remembering a reenacting and a revitalizing of the experience of freedom the very word haggadah haggadah means to attach to attach to connect to join and to bind one generation to the next generations and even in within the haggadah itself you see it there's mentions teachings from hillel hillel who lived in the times of the second temple and what he did in uh, his Korach sandwich, joining together the matzah, the mar, and the carbon Pesach, we encounter the five sages in B'nai Brak sitting at their Passover Seder in these in the times of the, the second century. Rabbi Akiva, one of the five. There's teachings of Amaron from the times of the Talmud, the Gemara, in the third centuries, in the fourth centuries. And there are poems and Additions and songs from throughout the generations, aside from all the Torah verses and the real core texts of the Agada, the Halal, the praises, the Kiddush. So the Agada is a fascinating tapestry of all the different generations coming together in one collective voice. And it's very unique. The Agada is anonymous. We don't know exactly who compiled it, but maybe that's part and parcel of the, the whole thing. It's it's that one collective voice from throughout generations. It's a re, re-engagement. Each year, there's new voices and there's new there's new perspectives and new resonance, resonance? new ways that it resonates in the current, uh, current time and place that we live in. Perhaps this also is why the Haggadah, commentaries on the Haggadah are one of the most popularly printed books of the explosion in the past few decades of Torah-based commentaries and ideas, books of all different types, different genres, and different styles. The Haggadah has always been a popular, if you're an author, you got to have some sort of Haggadah companion and whatnot. The joke goes that instead of asking, why is this night different from all other nights? The question that's traditionally asked by every pastor Seder, the question could be asked, has a why is this Haggadah different than everybody else? Because uh, they all, it's, there's so many and, and it's a, a beautiful thing. 
But maybe that's part of the idea that every single generation, there's something new. There's a new aspect. There's a new understanding and a, and a new way that it resonates. And excited for this season to delve into Haggadah this year and see how it could be applied in a, in a relevant and deep way. What's crucial in embarking on the Haggadah and the Passover concepts of freedom and really an exercise and an enactment of freedom is understanding that freedom is not just a tale of the past, but it's a plan, an agenda, a template for the future. Yes, in the past, it has brought freedom to people that were in physical slavery, dating back from the Jews in Egypt, physical slavery coming out. And the hope, the hope of freedom, even when people were in living under persecution and suffering, that hope of now we are here, but next year we will, we will be free. Now we are here, next year we will be in Jerusalem. That concept, that hope, connecting every generation to the next, will still be here, will still be around. And in times of prosperity, freedom rings in another way, of mutual responsibility, of, the, of internalizing that we can't truly be free if there are people that are suffering. And that freedom turns into a sense of responsibility. It's not a vacation. It's not a chofesh in Hebrew. It's not a vacation. But it's cheros. It's engraved on you. And you have a call to action. <laughs> if you're truly free, you're going to bring that out. You're going to manifest it. And this call to freedom really inspired all movements, all progression of morality. The history of morality was propelled by the vision of freedom that the Torah set out in Egypt that eventually became part and parcel of Western civilization. Figures like John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, like that new vision of freedom based on that biblical precept of the exodus, of the call that all men are equal, created in the image of God. In 1947, David Ben-Gurion, Prime Minister of Israel, argues the case for the creation of the state the year before. The creation. And he does so by referring to the Haggadah and to Passover. And he says, 300 years ago, a ship called the Mayflower set sail to the New World. It was a great event in the history of England. Yeah, you wonder, is there one person who knows what time the ship set sail? Do the English know how many people embarked on this voyage? What quality of bread they ate? Yet, more than 3,300 years ago, before the Mayflower set sail, the Jews left Egypt, every Jew in the world, America, Soviet Russia, Canada, knows on exactly what date they left, 15th of the month of Nisan. Everyone knows what kind of bread they ate. Even today, Jews worldwide eat the matzah on the 15th of Nisan. They retell the story of the Exodus and all the troubles Jewish people have endured since being exiled. And they conclude with two statements. This year slaves, next year free. This year here, next year in Jerusalem, in Zion, in Eretz Yisrael. That is the nature of the Jews. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes in the introduction to his Agadah, that the great message of Passover is a great contradiction, a great argument as to what is history. 
There is an idea, Joseph Heller once said this, idea of history is a trash bag of random coincidences blown open by the wind. Trash bag of random coincidences blown open by the wind. It's a place where people are valued not for who they are, but for their wealth, their power. Passover, Torah is a response to this and says, no, no, no. When we're sitting around the Seder table on Pesach, we're rehearsing the journey from the bread of oppression to the wine of freedom. We commit ourselves that history has meaning. That we're not condemned endlessly to just repeat the tragedies of the past. Not everywhere needs to be in Egypt. Not all politics have to be exploitation of the many by the few. Life is something other and more gracious than the pursuit of power. And beginning with Abraham culminating in Moses continuing through an unending sequence of prophets, of visionaries, of sages, of saints, of philosophers, poets, jurists, commentators. They were inspired by this vision. This vision. You are not based on your power, your wealth, your fame, but on who you really are. A spark of Hashem in the world that so often seems to deny His presence. And a vision. A vision. That society, society is built, communities are built on simple acts, on relationships, and on people's personal lives and their, their merits, godliness that they imbue within it. There have been many astute practitioners of Judaism that have noticed and have asked the following question. Throughout the year, every single day, there's a mitzvah, there's a directive and instruction and opportunity to connect over Egypt, remembering Egypt, remembering the Exodus. It's on mezuzahs, it's in tefillah, it's in kiddush on Shabbat, it's in the Shema, recited twice daily. So then what is unique about Passover? Retelling the story of Exodus. We do this every day. It's a good question. Chaim Salavechik. Chaim Salavechik. Best known for introducing the brisker methodology of learning. Which was at the time super innovative in its analytical prowess. Really getting to the source and the fundamental operating principle beyond every single issue behind every single law, behind every single discussion. And instead of dealing with a more practical, well, what should I do right now, Q&A type thing, instead of just answering the question on its surface, to really dig, dig deep till you understand the operating principle. Because once you get that, once you get that principle and you've zeroed in on it, as incisive and as sharp and accurate you could get, then you'll be able to apply it to all different manifestations to be able to detect what it is, what it isn't. Does this apply? Does it not? Chaim Salavechik. But I just anecdotal. This is what he's best known for. This rigorous intellectual development. Yet if you look at his gravestone, it says on his gravestone, he, is, he was a Rav Chesed. Somebody who was a Rav, somebody who was an expert, somebody who was broad in kindness, in loving kindness, and searching for kindness. He was once asked, 
What's the role of a rabbi? How would you define a rabbi? What's a rabbi supposed to do? Chaim Shalavetsha, the great thinker, answered, he said, to address the grievances of those who are abandoned and alone, to protect the dignity of the poor, and to save the oppressed from the hands of their oppressor. That's the definition of a rav. That's Rav Chaim Salavechak. Oh, so he, he, he says the following. He says, that on Pesach there are three unique things that are different from remembering Egypt from the rest of the year. Number one is that you have to say it out explicitly, and that's why we have the Agadah. Agadah is this mitzvah to say it out. See poor in Hebrew is to tell it over, as opposed to just thinking about it and meditating on the messages. It's a mitzvah to actually speak it out. Right off the bat, somebody asks the four questions. What is going on on Passover? What's happening? And then begins with the answer. The halacha is, the law is that even if you're doing Passover alone, just you by yourself, you ask the questions to yourself. It's not enough, oh, I'll just read it and think about it. But you have to ask out the question. That's number one. Number two is to recount the origin story. The origins. Going back to the beginning, to maybe not the most glamorous parts of the story. It's easy to focus on highlights. You walk back, you're talking to somebody, you're interviewing somebody, talking about all their accomplishments and their greatness and what they've and what they've built, trying to figure it out. But there's also great value, perhaps even stronger value, figuring out. The genus, the things that didn't work out, the struggles at the beginning, the things that the, that they failed, quote-unquote, in, the disappointments that led them to the success. And that's what we do on Passover. It's not only talking about redemption and freedom, but how we got there. How we got there. How we ended up as slaves. The process of slavery, what that taught us. The crucible of Egypt, which in Kabbalistic sages, is likened to a pregnancy. That was the pregnancy of the Jewish people, that they were in Egypt. And obviously, pregnancy is when the child, when the fetus gains so much of it, its identity and its being and its formation, very formation, all the critical development of the lungs and the heart and the brain. That was happening in Egypt the, the, on, the, on a metaphysical, spiritual level. Jewish people were developing their heart, their brain, their their lungs. That's the second unique element of Passover. And the third is to go into all the particular details. Not just to talk about Egypt, but to describe and to understand the heart behind what we do on Passover. So the heart behind matzah. What does matzah mean? What does matzah represent? Eating the matzah, what are, what, are, what are the intentions? What are the meditations behind eating the matzah? The marer, the bitter herbs, dipping it into charosa. What's going on there? What's the symbolism? What's the relevance to today? The Passover sacrifice. We don't do it anymore because we don't have the temple. But if we would, what would be? Or when they did it, what, 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 what would be the ideas behind that? What's going on? What's happening? The sheep. The lamb, very unique way, it has to be roasted. It's the only method of cooking. It can't be raw, eaten in a group, it can't be leftovers. 
can't break bones. Like, what's the idea of sacrifices in general? What's going on? Four cups of wine, why four? So all these details to really get into it, that's unique on Passover. That's sort of Chaim's answer. The difference between Zechiras Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, remembering leaving Egypt, and Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, telling it over. Now, this is a very fascinating point. That's a point of departure. The questions that you have to say it out, the first qualification on Passover. To say it out and to do it in a question format. Question answer. Four questions. Even if you're by yourself, you say out the questions and then answer. What's going on? What's this idea behind the questions? In Judaism, in Torah, to be without questions, if a person doesn't have any questions, it's not a sign of faith. I have no questions. I'm good. It's not a sign of faith. It's a sign of a lack of depth. You don't have questions. No depth. That's why one of the four sons on the question, the person that doesn't know how to ask, you open up, teach your child how to ask questions. It's not good that they don't have questions. Questions is the ultimate sign of humility. Somebody never has any questions, they know everything. They don't need to learn nothing. It's when you have that humility to say, what is going on over here? And even if I think I know it, to speak it out, because when you speak it out, you begin to notice certain things that you may not have noticed before. You thought you had it, all the depth there, but maybe there's ideas that you haven't yet peeled back those layers on. There's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Jewish physicist, named Isidore Rabi, won the Nobel Prize. And he was once asked why he became a scientist. And he said he learned it from his mother. He learned it from his mother because he said, I would come home from school. And every other child, the parent would ask, what did you learn today? But my mother, she wasn't like that. She said, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? Did you ask a good question today? Less about the knowledge and information that you gathered. The art of questioning. Dr. Abraham Tversky of Blessed Memory would say that one of the transformational moments in his youth was he was in school, he was in yeshiva, and the rabbi would push and push for people to ask questions. The better, the more demanding of the question, the more excited he would get. And anytime somebody would ask a question, he would get so excited, he'd say, you're right, 100% right, what a good question, and now I'll show you where you're wrong. The art of questioning, the, the, the highest praise in the yeshiva is... Right, you're asking a good question. A good question is better than a good answer. A good question, the difference between chaos and a good question. Chaos is when nothing's happening, when everything's just mixed up. But when you're able to understand what the, the question here is, then it's no longer chaos. Then it's a, a problem with a solution that's going to lead you towards a, a new path of understanding. It's going to illuminate. You're not just stuck in this murkiness, but the question itself lead to the answer, as opposed to an answer that just sort of avoids, as opposed to an answer that sort of just avoids the entire mountain. Here, you're boring right through the mountain. You're cutting that hole. You're going straight through. Right, that's the, the best type of answer is when you are clear on that question. I used to say this about uh, 
Mayor Stern. I wasn't sure if I was going to go to uh, the Passaic Yeshiva. I was there for high school, and then it was a debate if I was going to stay on or not. And one of my mentors that I was discussing the question with, it was, it was between Passaic and another place. And he said, let me tell you, you go to the other place, it's like uh, somebody that reaches the mountain. You reach the woods, you're stuck. You have a question. You're unsure. How should I proceed? So, okay, so you find a path around it. And you have to be very creative and you have to be wise and intelligent to be able to just find new ways, new routes, quickly uh, reroute. So when you go to uh, Rav Meir Sner, if you learn in the Pseic Yeshiva, you'll see and you'll learn from Rosh Hashiva, you'll learn from Rav Meir And when you're faced with, a, mat, with a, a mountain, you're faced with a forest, you find a way through. You go right through, you take it on, you take on that murkiness, you take on the vagueness of the forest and of the confusion. And you deal with it and you sort it out. And you relish in a good question. The question itself is there. And it's going to allow you to go straight through the forest. And this is really the, the optimal form of education. When you're able to educate not just in a indoctrinate way. Where I need to give you over this information. I need to transmit it and test it to make sure you got it. Check X. Rather it's teaching someone to be curious. To wonder to reflect, to inquire, to, to become active in the learning process, not just to be passive as a recipient, a child just sitting behind the desk and writing down the notes, to become active in the process. That's real education. That's why right at the beginning of that gather, we talk about the four types of children, different ways of learning, and each one has a personalized approach to, in order to bring them into the process of learning. Right? That's what Moshe, that's what Moses Rabbi knew. Moses Rabbeinu, that is uh, teaching us in the Agada and the four different types. Each one has its own verse, its own way of reflecting, its own way of bringing them in, of connecting, of attaching, of bringing them active. And that's why questioning is so much part of a parcel, part and parcel of Jewish education and of the Passover Seder. And deeper than that, it's really a part of the heart of all spirituality, of all Jewish spirituality. You look at the heroes of Judaism, they're all questioning God. They're all questioning Hashem. And it seems like the greater the prophet, the harder the question they ask. Abraham asking, By the people of Sodom, he asks Hashem, he says, Will the judge of all earth not perform justice? Moshe, Moses wants to know, Why have you brought trouble upon your people? Why are good people suffering? Jeremiah, Yermio, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless Live at ease. The book of Job, Eov, the entire thing is an exploration in human suffering, a book of questions asking, asked by man. And what's incredible, you look in the book of Eov, it's a whole litany of questions and the response from God, four chapters of his own questions. Questions is that heart of spirituality, it's the heart of growth, it's the heart of humility. Yet there are conditions. There are conditions to asking questions. Rabbi Sachs points out three of them. Number one, humility. You got to be motivated genuinely. You want to learn. You don't want to doubt, to ridicule, to dismiss, to reject. If that's your approach, that's like the wicked child in the Agada, not out of a desire to understand, but as an answer to why you're walking away. 
That's not a real Jewish question. Second question, to understand and accept that there are limits to finite understanding. That not everything is going to be intelligible at any given moment. And there were scientists at the beginning of the 20th century who believed that every major discovery has had already been made. <laughs> they didn't realize that, oh wait, Einstein's relativity theory, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, Godel's theorem, proof of the bang, discovery of DNA, how it would still come out. And you look at it in relation to Torah, in relation to Judaism, there were many Jews in the 19th century that couldn't understand Jewish prayers. Because in Jewish prayers there's a text that we're praying and hoping and aspiring for a return to Israel. To Jerusalem. For Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And it didn't make sense to them in the 19th century. And they literally deleted it from the prayer book. So these facts of history should induce in us, again, a, a certain humility that not every commonly held belief survives the test of time. And not everything in Judaism that we don't understand is unintelligible. Because we might, in one generation, find something very difficult, and the next generation might find that thing the most meaningful of all. So faith is not opposed to questions, but it's opposed to the shallow certainty that we understand all that there is. So number two, again, humility to accept I'm going to go to the to the very edge. The very, I'm going to push my knowledge and my focus as to much as I can get. But I'm not the smartest and the most intelligent person that will ever exist for the rest of humanity. Number three, to understand that when it comes to Torah, we learn by living, and we understand by doing. Same way, music. Really learn to understand music by listening to music. If you never listen to music, you can learn about it from today till tomorrow. A to Z, Z to A, Aleph to Tav. You can't truly understand music unless you listen. And literature, you're not going to truly appreciate literature if you don't read. Same to with Shabbat. Reading about Shabbat without keeping it, without experiencing Shabbat, you're not going to understand it. And to really understand Pesach, to understand Passover, has to be experienced. It's not enough just to listen to a podcast about it, but to actually live it, to actually relive it. And, and be absorbed by it to really come out with that ideal. And that's the, the Passover story and why it's structured in a Q&A format. Over the course of the season, I'd like to get into the order, the Seder of the Pesach Seder to go through the whole experience. That's the Passover Seder, pa- Passover Seder, the, the Pesach Seder, the Pesach order. The word Seder means order, which is actually paradoxical. Because on one hand, it's order. There's order. There's 15 steps in the Seder. And order in the Jewish concept of freedom. Passover is all about freedom. We need order in society. An order that honors all people in the image of God. Not just in the rare moments of ecstasy, but in daily transactions, daily interactions in a society as a whole, it has to have a Seder. It has to have a set of rules that are honored. Order turns a bunch of individuals into a community, and communities make a people. And the Seder night, Passover night, reflects that order. 
and it binds us and connects us with Jews all across the world and in previous generations. Yet, the paradox is, at the same time, there's so much spontaneity in the Seder. No two Seder nights, back-to-back, will ever be the same. Every family, every year, new insights resonates differently. So the, the Seder is there, and there's rules of the game, but then the game itself is ripe for improvisation, for unique personalities to inject and to understand and reflect and to connect with the messages, with the ideals, with the values, with the discussions in a unique way. That's why we have so many new agadas popping out, because the rules are the same, but the commentaries, the interpretations are always different. And it's how such an old story, 3,300 years old, stays so young. So the Seder plate, the first thing in the Seder is Kadesh. Kadesh is the Kiddush of the day, the same way we enter Shabbat with Kiddush, sanctifying the day, bringing upon the sanctification. So too we do before every holiday, including Passover. That's step number one. It's also the first of the four cups of wine. Four cups of wine have their own symbolism, which we will get to shortly um, in, a, in a future episode. The Kiddush is essentially just a, a blessing, a bracha. We do it over the wine, because when you're excited about a bracha, you want to dignify the moment, to bring a nice bottle of wine to, to, help, to help the uh, moment become uh, excitable. It's a good metaphor in general to Judaism. If you want to make Judaism exciting, you got to bring whatever elements you can from the earthly world that we live in, all the good things out there in the world, to bring it in and to use it, and elevate it and bring it up. The very concept of a, of a blessing, bracha in Hebrew. A bracha means this is going to be a source. This is a source. This is not the end. This is a beginning. A well is a brecha in Hebrew. Brings forth its source, a wellspring, source of water. And that's what a concept of, of a blessing really is. When a Jew makes a blessing before drinking a cup of water, a cup of wine, or eating, what they're saying is, is that this is not going to stop here. It's not just a hedonistic, gluttonous moment that I eat this piece of sushi, sushi and I've done, I've finished this animalistic act. But this is going to be the beginning. With this energy, Baruch Atah Hashem, you, Hashem, are the source of all blessing, and now I am going to take that and continue that into the world. I'm going to make the world more godly. I'm going to make the world better. I'm going to go out and with this energy, call my mom, help my friend, shovel my neighbor's walk, whatever it is that I'm doing out in my day, that I've configured my life to really maximize my purpose in this world. I need energy for that. And all the energy, every physical act that I do of wellness, of health, of nutrition, I preface that with this commitment, with this pledge. A bracha, blessing, is, is not the right word. A bracha is a pledge. It's a pledge. It's number one, appreciating, of course, the source of everything and where it comes from, that it's here, that I, I have the privilege of being able to consume this and taste it and enjoy it. And then so much deeper, it's a pledge for the future, saying, I'm going to go out and accomplish this in the world. And that's what the perfect beginning to the Passover Seder is this blessing of wine. That we're going to take this wine, unlike others, perhaps, that drink wine and end up doing base things. We're going to drink wine and we're going to keep going higher from here. It's going to be the start of a, 
of an epic night, epic Seder experience, and really touch and taste freedom. And with a concluding thought, a person might think, who am I? Who am I to dream, to aspire, to try, to attempt to reach holiness, to reach freedom? The first phase of the Seder, Kadesh, means holy. Holy throughout the air. Who am I? I'm unworthy. I'm not the type of person that's going to hit that. That's not me. I'm a, I'm a simple, simpleton. Says the Abne Nezer. Says the Sachachover. Of Romi Sachachov, the son-in-law of the Kotsk Rabbi Sachachov was a town in uh, Poland, not too far from Kotsk. Says the Sachachov, that's why we start with Kadesh. First thing, holiness. Every single person, no matter where you are, what station you're holding in life, the same way the Jewish people in Egypt were unworthy. They too. In the Haggadah itself, it says, Va'at arm va'arya. You're barren and naked, you're unworthy. First step, Kadesh, you're in. You're you're, you're uh, uplifted just because you're you. Hashem loves you. And that's why Kadesh comes before Orchatz. Orchatz, washing hands. We Right after we finish Kadesh, we go to second step, to wash hands. Washing hands is always a metaphor for cleanliness. Not just physical cleanliness, but spiritual cleanliness whole concept of a mikvah, we're just simply washing hands before davening, before prayer. There's halacha to wash hands. Spiritually cleansed before a holy moment, but on Passover, on Pesach, it's the reverse. Hashem says every single Jew, no matter where you are, what station you are at life, here is a, a, a key. You're zoned in. You're in. Holy. Boom. Let's do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed before, you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that. And listen to the other episodes. Please reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347-893-4467. Harusapodcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.